Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and what I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. All right, here I am back with, I can't believe it, Emily. It's been a year since we've done a podcast together. Uh, I'm having anxiety. <laughs> it should be excitement, not anxiety. It's separation anxiety. I had to there have you, you back. And you know, it also occurred to me as, as uh, just full disclosure for people listening, we've attempted to do this a few times over the weekend. And I remember when you were in Spain and I tried to do this with you and your, your phone was breaking up and... You know, it's, it's like the world is working against us. It feels like the, <laughs> these two forces of nature gathering together in one. We're too powerful. We're too powerful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't know what it is. But uh, anyway, I really, really wanted to get you back because, I mean, I don't want to sound redundant, but I guess it's not really redundancy if it's been over a year since we spoke. But um, the audience that I that I serve, the people that I work with, they're troubled. I mean, they they are constantly, constantly jacking up their ankles. They're jacking up their feet. Plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, and all this stuff. And I'm a student of yours. I'd like to believe I pay attention to the things that you do. I listen to your blogs, or, or I should say, I read your blogs. I listen to your podcast, and you've helped me quite a lot over the years with um, the education you provide. And I like to believe that I'm a pretty good student, and when I get out and do what I do with the people around the world, I share much of what I learned from you, if that makes you happy. It does. Thank you. I appreciate it. So the one thing that you've taught me, something that really stuck with me, is the understanding of what occurs on ground contact and how the influences of ground contact radiate up through the kinetic chain. What I would love for you to do for me, and uh, incidentally, one of the things that I've been spending a lot of focus on lately is the importance of range of motion through the ankle and the great toe and how that influences what occurs on ground contact. So if you could kind of just like run with that a little bit, I would love it. Okay, cool. So um, excited to go into this topic. I hope the listeners are excited to learn a little bit more about impact forces and how they can really harness the energy from impact forces by optimizing that relationship between foot and ground. Now, when we're speaking about impact forces or ground reaction forces, the way that I want everyone to think about this is that it is the energy that is provided by gravity in the ground to then be used by the body for each successive movement. So it is the energy force of dynamic movement. If you cannot perceive impact forces or you cannot sufficiently absorb and release the energy of impact forces, you will not be moving efficiently which means you probably will be working much harder than you should be. 
anytime an athlete starts working harder than they should be, so they're working more muscularly versus fascial, then we start to see most of the injuries that you're probably experiencing and encountering as you go around and do your workshops. So the plantar fasciitis and Achilles tendonitis, IT band issues, um, really any tendon-based injury. Now, understanding how our body perceives impact is honestly the most important concept around this. And we perceive impact forces through the skin in the bottom of the feet. And impact forces are perceived as vibration. So if, if listeners can just kind of sit with that for a second and thinking that every time their foot is hitting the ground, hitting the dirt, hitting the pavement, whatever it is, there are vibrations that are entering the body. And being able to perceive those vibrations allows your body and your nervous system to absorb them faster than if you are disconnected from that perception. Yeah. So any delay in the perception of, of impact can create injury. Now, some of the most common barriers that we see or causes of not being able to perceive vibration or impact has to do with footwear. Cushion in shoes creates a barrier between the vibration and the body, which means that the shoe is actually absorbing, the cushion in the shoe is absorbing the vibration. So now, because that's happening, your body, brain, foot has less information than is needed to really know what the movement is that you're doing. Kind of like blinded a little bit, um, which means that you might be less stable. The chance of you rolling your ankle might be a little bit higher. The chance of you hitting the ground a little bit higher than you're prepared to absorb or react to may start to happen. And the, the more you have that disconnect between vibration in and movement out, the higher the chance of injury. You know, not to, not to cut you off, but I want to share with you, because I know you love my moronic analogies. <laughs> but the way I share this with people uh, and try to dummy it down as best I can for them to understand it is that I punch you in the face and then I tell you to duck. Right. So the information is just a little tardy. And in the course of that, you take the hit. Yeah. I mean, that, hey, that works, Richard. I'll, I'll go with that. Um, but yeah, you, you want your, let, let's just put it back this way. Everything, every movement in life is based off of sensory information. Every aspect of life is sensory driven. So the more that you see, the more that you hear, the more that you feel, the more that you taste, right? The, the temperatures that you feel, all of those different subtleties of sensory information are necessary to help your brain control the movement. Sensory must precede motor out or movement. So afferent in, efferent out, sensory in, motor out. 10 times as many nerves in your body are sensory than motor. And understanding that, appreciating that, building that into how you prevent injuries and how you train your body to be wicked fast and super strong can have a profound effect, especially when people are doing these obstacle course races because they're getting exhausted and fatigued. One of the 
pivotal signs of fatigue is that your nervous system delays, which means your reaction time goes down and your injury risk goes up. Yeah, I see that. So much to play with here. It's just so much. I mean, and it's funny because how many years is it? We, we've been doing this, you and I, conversationally for better than five years now. Do you know that? Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. It's been a while, but... I, I get people in social media that they, they always they'll, they'll remark when anybody shows a hoka or, or a puffy, the marshmallow bottom shoes that, that yeah. people, they, they, they perceive that, okay, I'm going to be running on a hard surface, so I need to put something soft beneath my foot. And, and when I tell them that it really doesn't matter what the surface structure is, it has to do with the sensory information that they're gathering or not that's going to make a difference between injury or not. It's not a function of like, okay, I better put on these really padded shoes and that's going to put me in a better place. Would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. I would say the best example of movement efficiency in athletes that are in tune, so I call it tuning into the ground or tuning into the feet and the sensory stimulation, are parkour or free running. I don't know if you're familiar with sure. that. I think we spoke about that last time. Um about free running where a lot of these athletes will jump from building to building, concrete, concrete ledge to other concrete ledge. Some of them will be in converse, minimal shoes. Some people will even do it barefoot and they understand the necessary aspect of impact forces. They are trying to actually harness those impact forces as much as they can, which is why they don't use cushion shoes when they're doing free running and parkour. Obstacle course training, running in general, should look at it that same way that the more that you are tuned into the ground or the more that you have this harmonic relationship with the ground or really with anything that you're doing, the the one the, the more you become one with that surface or that that you know rope that you're climbing. I mean it's it's all a harmonic dance that we're doing and I hope that the listeners start to look at running and foot ground relationships in that way yeah and so oh man I just love talking about this stuff it just the other consideration is technique and technique leads to this harmony you're speaking of right so if you're if you're putting yourself in a compromised position when you're at ground contact that makes it more difficult for your body to to provide the timing that it's looking for. Would that be a reasonable way of explaining it? Yes. So for example, so, overstriding and landing on your calcaneus, or your, so your heel striking, right? So you're basically bypassing the fascia that's kind of the setup for the rest of the kinetic chain to get, to get in play. Would you agree with that? Yes. Do you want me to go on a little bit on yeah, that? Yeah, 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 please. Okay. Cool. So this foot ground relationship is really important because obviously that's where you're encountering the impact forces. A key feature around that is that you want that experience with the ground to be very short. The longer that you're on the ground or the longer that you are exposed to these vibrations, the higher the injury risk because the vibration and the impact forces, as much as it is beneficial, it is still a form of stress on your body and on your tissue. So shorten your exposure to that stress by decreasing your contact time. When you start speaking about uh, different techniques, such as overstriding, heel strike, different strike patterns, 
we'll talk about overstriding. So when you do a an overstride, you are inherently lengthening your contact time. So your time to exposure to the stress, which is the vibration and the impact goes up, which means you will then start to hit what's called your stress threshold for your tissue. Heel strike, overstride, those go hand in hand. Heel strike does have a longer contact time than a midfoot strike pattern. So even if you are a heel strike runner and you're not overstriding, that strike pattern in itself inherently has a longer contact time. So switching from a heel strike to a midfoot strike is essentially decreasing that runner's exposure to the stress stimulus with each time their foot strikes the ground. The other consideration, you kind of danced around it, but I believe it's important to note is that the cadence is what is going to draw the foot closer to center of mass, which is going to shorten up the ground contact time, correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So to to shorten the stride, you want to um, increase the cadence. And the that really is the, the science or the mathematics to reducing running-related injuries is decreasing that contact time. It also has a correlation. Sorry, I just want to real quick. Yep. It also has a correlation with speed. So if runners are trying to increase their speed time or their acceleration, maybe there's some sprinters that are listening the acceleration and speed rates is directly related to contact time. So those that are able to get off of the ground quicker will actually be the faster runners. No question. Now, the thing that I find people get into trouble with when you, we, we speak of shortening the stride, I think it's important to, um, I, I mean, you might argue this, I don't know, but I find that what's important to me is that the cr- contact is near center of mass and obviously enough, the gait cycle is shortened in that regard. And then because the force production is going to improve because you're more stable when you make ground contact, then the eccentric energy that you're going to gather from that contact will potentially thrust you through space further forward, which may result in stride opening up behind you. And, and I, don't, I don't concern myself with the stride behind someone. What I concern myself with is the stability and the nature of where they made ground contact. And so when people talk about shortening the stride, a lot of times that gets them into trouble because they get into this kind of a buzzsaw approach to their gait, which uh, ultimately ends up increasing the cost to work metabolically. And that's a rabbit hole I don't like people to have to go down. I want them to be able to open their stride up behind them. And that usually is a result of better ground contact, which means better force production. Would you agree with that? Hundred percent, and then exactly what you just described allows the runner to take advantage of what's called the spring mass theory, which is the elastic recoil of our connective tissue, your tendons, your fascia, and that's actually how your body releases the energy that it brought in from impact forces and from the vibration. So you have to be doing exactly what you said, matched with the perception of the vibration. Cool. Whew, I was so concerned that you're going to tell me I was wrong about that. Not at all, Richard. <laughs> all right. So um, uh, that was kind of in a nutshell. But let's talk about this too. So beginning with the initiation with ground contact, the great toe is really important in all of this, as I understand it. We start to get this dorsiflexion off the great toe, 
which lends us into um, activating the fascia in the bottom of the foot. When the foot makes contact with the earth, completely heals down, and now we've got ankle dorsiflexion. So now we're loading, right? So we, we, now our body is essentially over the foot and synergistically engaged the system right up into the pelvic floor. Would you find that to be reasonable? Yes. So you're, what you're describing is the lever position of the foot, which is critical and we actually have to be able to achieve a stable, rigid lever foot position. Um, think of a, a foot that's about to take a step. If you're doing a calf raise and you go onto your toes, that's a rigid lever position. A foot when it's in a high tail, that rigid lever from an evolutionary perspective is what actually allowed us to start being able to run and harness the potential from ground reaction forces. If you cannot achieve the position of the foot that you just described, which is the lever, you are not going to be releasing as much elastic energy or power as you might be able to. So in someone, let's say, who either has poor foot mechanics, an overpronated foot, a flat foot, has a bunion, has arthritis in their big toe, and they can't get into that rigid lever position, even if they do this amazing job of, of perceiving and absorbing vibration at foot strike, they will never release the energy that they need to, the, the optimal energy that they need to when they run or do dynamic movement. Yeah, so there's a limit to the performance potential if they're not able to create what we just discussed. 100%. I've been looking at this because I, I'm still trying to write this stupid book and people have been waiting for me to finish this thing. Let me just kind of share with you that the nature of this book is really about metabolic response to work. So we're talking about what happens when you go over threshold in the lactate production, and whether you're able to create an accessory energy from the lactate production and so on and so forth. Because races are not won aerobically. They're won when you know, you're, you're throwing down, you know, because somebody's pressing mm -hmm. you to. So anyway, you have to be able to manage this. And so what I identified is that, well, first of all, before I can start talking to people about intensity, I need to talk to people about biomechanics of movement. Because if you don't move well, then you're subject to injury by trying to go harder. I don't want mm -hmm. to lead them down that rabbit hole. And then I started thinking about, well, we, we could talk all day about what it's supposed to look like to be a beautiful runner. But if you can't create these ranges of motions through the joints that we're discussing, then you're always going to be uh, at ends with the production of proper mechanics. Would you feel that to be accurate? Yes, which you know that that's going to translate into decreased efficiency and working harder than they should be and then taking compensatory range of motion from any other joint in the body. That's a lot of patients that I see in my office that are getting injured is they're trying to force the range of motion from somewhere else because they can't get it out of their ankle or um, their great toe, something like that. Right. So that led me to the, the preceding chapter. You know, it's like I wanted to talk about one thing, but I couldn't talk about it because I had to talk about the, the thing that should precede the thing that I want to talk about. And then I found another thing that I should be talking about in order to precede the thing that I found was important to talk about before I could talk about the thing I want to talk about, which is mobility and stability. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have joint mobility, joint stability up the kinetic chain in order to create this harmonious act right so we, can we talk about what are adequate ranges of motion for performance through the great toe the ankle 
And I, I assume that that's basically the linchpins because that's what's going to have repercussion at the knee and the hip, right? Yes. And then I'll actually take it a little bit further up. So I would say that optimal range of motion or regions that you want to be thinking of range of motion is going to be the big toe, obviously. For that one, you want to have an optimal for walking it. It's around 30 degrees dorsiflexion is the minimum that you can get away with. Some of the listeners might not really know what that looks like. So what I will tell people to do is can you put your finger underneath your big toe all the way to the base? Now, you cannot do this on yourself. You have to have someone do it to you that you're standing relaxed and they can passively put their finger under the big toe to the first MPJ. And that is showing, okay, you have the potential, potential this is, for at least 30 degrees dorsiflexion in the big toe. There is a lot of different reasons for having a functional restriction in the big toe, which means that it has absolutely nothing to do with arthritis or the anatomy. It has to do with the timing of stability. Um, We can explore that a little bit more if you want. Second area would be the ankle. And for the ankle, having 10 degrees of dorsiflexion, and this is needed in what's called subtalar joint neutral. So there is often a misconception around ankle mobility when people will do a um, kneeling ankle assessment. I'm sure the listeners and, and you, Richard, have seen it where people are kneeling and they're near a wall and they're moving their toes back and they're driving the knee forward to see if it can touch the wall and their toes are, I don't know, a couple inches away from the wall. So they're showing like, oh, my knee can go past my toes. Look how flexible my ankle is. Um, That does not translate to running in the sense that 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 foot is not being being controlled in what's called subtalar joint neutral. So the only way that that individual is getting their knee forward and showing how flexible their ankles are is because they're pronating in their rear foot, which is actually what we do not want happening in that momentary heel touch when we're running. Now, the third area is the pelvis and the freedom of the pelvis has to be in all planes of motion, which means you want to make sure that your pelvis can go forward and back it can go hip hike, which is side to side, and then it can rotate uh, almost like you're moving your right pelvis towards the left side of your body and then the opposite. So that's a rotation. And then your T-spine or your rib cage has to be freed in those same movements as well. Can your rib cage go forward and back? Can it go side to side and can it rotate? Those four areas are are 100% the areas that I assess on all of my patients. Big toe, ankle, pelvis, T-spine. If you don't have rotation in those areas, or not rotation, uh, mobility in those different areas, the body will compensate in a different joint and often lock up the rest of it, which means that if a runner's rib cage is not rotating, and you could picture it like someone who walks without swinging their arms. I guess it would be a, right. the best example, right? So someone who's walking without swinging their arms, their rib cage, T-spine, is not rotating, which if the T-spine doesn't rotate, your pelvis 
stops rotating because the only way that your pelvis can rotate is if your rib cage counter rotates. And if one isn't doing it, then the other one's not going to because those rotations need to be countered somehow in the body. So the pelvis locks up. And then once your pelvis locks up, your ankle locks up. Once your ankle locks up, now it starts to throw off the rest of the foot and can greatly impact your great toe. Are you familiar with Gray Cook? Uh-huh. So in Gray Cook's book, uh, I think that he, Cook's book, hey, did I say that? He spoke of something that I thought was really uh, entertaining. Actually, I think it was Mike Boyle that spoke of Gray Cook. Do you know who Mike 100%. Boyle is? 100%. Okay. So he talked about the stacking order of the kinetic chain and what is required of the body for normal function. And he suggested that at the, at the initial joint, there needs to be, uh, let's see if I get this right. Um, I guess if you went as far down as the great toe, like you're speaking, you need to have mobility to create stability at the, the next joint. And the mobility creates stability and onward up the joints. So the one thing begets the next. And if you have a limitation in one, you have a limitation in the other. Or you defer the potential for injury at the, at the next occurring joint. Yeah, so you could say, okay, great toe. Um, I mean, the foot's a little bit different because it goes forward and back. But let's say the ankle is, you don't have mobility in the ankle. That compromises the stability of the midfoot, which if the midfoot is not stable, you lose the mobility of the great toe. If you want to go up, if you don't have mobility of the ankle, you compromise the stability in the knee. And then that's going to further translate up into the rest of the mobility into the hip and the pelvis. And then obviously it goes up to the rest of the spine. So you, you do get counter stress, counter compensation if one joint is either not mobile or stable. Right. So we just spoke of the essentially the cause and ultimately the effect of that lack of mobility and stability, which is leading to the injuries that people are seeing in your office. Yeah, every injury that I see in my office is either mobility or stability right. issue. So that's my point yeah. is, is that because, and again, this is what brought me to essentially what's going to end up being probably the first chapter of the book is the importance of getting and understanding the mobility and stability if you're going to try to perform as an athlete. Because if you don't have that organized, or if you're at least not having as part of your, your repertoire and your training, an important component of your training, then everything else you're doing, it's almost irresponsible. Yeah, yeah, but the, and then what I would carry off of that is that making sure that the listeners and the athletes are achieving mobility through the right techniques, where mobility is a fascial concept, it's not a muscular concept. Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Well, but point being, and, and you're right, and, and I guess that, that we're delving deeper into the, into the concepts of it, but at the end of the day, that needs to be something on their mind. You know, and mm -hmm. I, I'll do a clinic where I'll have people take their shoes off and actually try to put their fingers between their toes and see how much pliability, mobility, or range of motion they have in their feet. Or I like to break out the foam wedge and have people try to do some one-legged balancing exercises on all four planes to see you know, how things are holding up. But at the end of the day, I think it's needing to be a very integral part of their process. So guess what I'm going to talk about next? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you're going to talk about it. I'm going to bring it up. Okay. Um, I got introduced 
by you, as a matter of fact, to this stick mobility. Stick mobility, yes. You know, truth be told, I saw some videos because, you know, I'm a geek. I searched this kind of stuff out. But I saw some videos somewhere on the Internet about these guys demonstrating these sticks. And I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. My first blush with it was, eh, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, I don't know. And then, lo and behold, here you're involved with them, and you're including your Naboso line, your products for barefoot training. Uh, I shouldn't say barefoot anymore because I know that it's also integral with uh, contact points of the hand. Yes. And so going back to the sensory feedback, what you've done is you're accelerating this sensory feedback while people are going through ranges of motion to try to develop a more acute relationship with their system. And uh, the sticks um, are essentially tools to try to carry you through these ranges of motion to try to improve mobility and, in course, developing stability. Can you talk about that relationship? And I know that you have a program that's specific to runners, which I've been playing with. As a matter of fact, I was this morning on my 66th birthday instead of smoking a cigar and drinking the champagne that was offered me, I was playing with those sticks on your Noboso mat. Don't you feel better? I'm a little disappointed, to be honest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, can you can give us give us the rundown on this whole thing, please? Yeah, absolutely. So for those who are not familiar with stick mobility, um, head to stickmobility.com and check them out. But I want everyone to picture a six-foot stick that is orange and it is about an inch inch and a half in diameter almost like a pvc pipe but it flexes so it is a proprietary material that they use for it that allows you to push into the stick when you're in certain positions or poses or stretches and create even more tension so a lot of the philosophy behind stick mobility and, of course, everything that I teach is harnessing the fascial tension of the body, which translates to stability and to activation of the nervous system. Uh, almost, I don't know if you're familiar with FRC. FRC, help, help me with that. Okay, so... Um, FRC, your functional range condition, I think it is what the, the abbreviation is. So it's a tension-based range of motion. We did a lot of this as gymnasts where you would create tension in other parts of the body and then you would be more flexible when you're trying to go into a stretch in another muscle in the body. That's a lot of the philosophy around this. So the term is tensegrity, right? Yes, so tensegrity and tensegrity, which is stability, allows different areas of the body to actually unlock and become more mobile, where we were just speaking about the benefit of mobility. So you have this stick, six-foot stick that flexes if you go into a certain position. And to actually harness the tension, the way that we do it is through through the Naboso mat, so you're standing on the textured mat, which I can speak about a little bit more as well, and engaging your feet in short foot, which I've spoken before on um, the podcast, and by engaging and putting your toes down into this textured mat, 
and almost like you want to tear the mat apart, you just created tension within your body. You probably will be feeling your core lighting up. Then you have the stick, and while you're doing a stretch with the stick with one part on the ground and the other part sticking in the air, so it's a vertical stick, you are pulling your hands apart on the stick or you're pushing your hands together on the stick or you're trying to flex the stick. Things like that that are harnessing tension hands, tension feet, tension core, um, tensegrity as you had mentioned. And then at the same time, let me move into a uh, mobility position. And we do this and we created a program through their fascial tension tool with the Naboso proprioceptive mat sensory to then teach runners how to prime their nervous system before they start running, how to achieve more efficient or effective mobilization through uh, the use of tension and proprioception. And then built in the program as well as a post-run mobilization and then several uh, non-run days or when it's shorter run days as far as like the conditioning to increase your mobility and um, active mobility, we'll say. So you're engaging strength while mobilizing where active mobilization is completely different than passive mobilization. You could think of this as more of a active mobilization. But I got to tell you, I've been messing with it and uh, I've been looking at the tutorial videos and the first thing that struck me that just, I mean to tell you, I lit up when I saw it, I loved it, was the ankle mobility exercises that you do. Carrying the ankle through all the ranges of motion, off the great toe, just really causing the feet to be challenged in a multiplanar fashion under load. I don't know of another way, I suppose, well, I guess there could be another way to do it, but just such a really cool approach to preparing the the lower quadrant, for lack of a better term, before you go out and run. You see people, I'm sure, where you live in the park, will, you know, lean against a tree and try to create a calf stretch and then set about running on their heels where they're not even really engaging their calves. And, you know, then this type of runner who has lack of appropriate mobility and stability in their in their system will ultimately be limited by the amount of volume that they can create. And ultimately, because they can't run more often, they're not going to run as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's honestly what you're doing before you start that run that's just as or even more important than the actual run itself. You know, I mean, most high-level athletes, the warm-up is the most important part. Before I train and I do my aerials, my warm-up is like, 30 minutes, the conditioning before we start doing anything is much longer than the actual training time. Um, I know runners love to run, (laughs) so they, they warm up through running versus doing, you know, these focused mobilizations that you are speaking of. And I think that most would find that they run much more efficiently when they take just that few minutes to mobilize the right way before they start running. Well, if your range of motion is compromised when you begin, every step you take is compromised. Oh, 100%. So you're potentially setting yourself up for injury the longer that you run in that compromised state. And and that's what people look at as running. And and I, I hate hearing people say, 
oh, I don't run anymore because I have bad knees, you know? And I'm sure you've heard that. It's just like they always want to blame their system at large for the dysfunction in the way they're moving. And, you know, it doesn't need to be that way. I don't even think age really has that much to do with it. Don't run anymore. Use an elliptical trainer or ride a recumbent bike. A runner never wants to hear that. Oh, by the way, you can't run anymore because your knees are jacked up. Well, what about the way you're moving? If you're not moving well, then every step you take is compromised regardless of how fit or unfit you are. And I often tell people that it's a function of strength to weight ratio. The people that are corrupt but they're really strong and light get away with a lot more than someone that is heavier and less strong. Their system is just not as capable of compensating for the mistakes they make. Yeah, what I, what I would add to that is the more that the listeners or the athletes and runners understand their body, understand the impact of their injury, and then how can they work around or within that injury by understanding more effective mobilization techniques, activation techniques, you know, what your pre-run movement prep is, should be really individualized based off of your injury history, your anatomy, your physiology, your running technique, all of that stuff that allows you to then run the distance that really is appropriate as well. So, you know, I would never tell a patient, you know, no, don't ever run again. I mean, I might say run much shorter distances, please, but try to empower them to know why this happened in the first place, how you can prevent it from, you know, limiting you from even just walking down the street with without pain. And then just take ownership for your body, for your mechanics, and then for the stresses that you're putting it under by understanding your body. And, well, I have to tell you that, you know, as I travel around the country, a lot of the people that come to these clinics, they come to me simply because they're injured. There's nothing more motivating than, than pain when it comes to uh, trying to perform. I'll have people that want to come to see me because they want to perform better, but that, that community is actually much smaller than the ones that are just so frustrated with injuries. Uh, but having said that, I'll have someone come to me that's been having trouble with their knee, having trouble with their back, and change the way they're approaching their run, and instantaneously they're able to achieve a run without pain because they're no longer insulting the joints with the, the technique that they were, they, they were using beforehand. And uh, I mean, hamstring issues, uh, immediately gone, because they changed their approach. And, and same thing with the knee, sometimes with the back. Um, now, whether they're able to continually apply what I show them, well, there's only so much I can do, but adjusting the way they move, which puts into play all the things that we discussed earlier is essentially what's been my role. So let's talk about Naboso because I think more people need to understand what that's all about. Yes. I would gladly talk about Naboso. Thought you might. <laughs> yeah. So Naboso, which is N-A-B-O-S-O, -O, the website nabosotechnology.com, is a textured insole and matte product line. Uh, I launched it really kind of soft launch proof of concept testing market last year. And then our, our first official um, 
launch was this year. So it's a newer product, but it's a powerful product when it comes to stimulating the skin and the bottom of the feet. So picture a yoga mat that has tiny little pyramids on them that are one millimeter tall. They're a very specific distance between each other, and it's stimulating a very special nerve in the skin and the bottom of the feet and the palm of the hand. So those two areas of the body are sensitive to different stimulation than the rest of the skin on the body. And that skin on the hands and feet, sensing the two points or the little pyramids that are all over the texture that's on the the mat and the insoles, actually stimulates the brain and the nervous system to help us better understand where our body is in space. So our posture, our balance, our our joint stability, you can actually perceive impact forces faster when you run in textured insoles. Now, not everyone has to. I know that you might want to speak on that, but it is a very specific stimulus almost like Braille would be the best analogy that I give to people thinking how your hands read Braille and the shape and kind of distance arrangement of Braille, something very similar to what is on our mats and our insoles. And we have found amazing results with um, as far as one side as children who are autistic and you give them the sensory mat to stand on and it quiets them and centers them, they're able to focus, to athletes who just had knee surgery and now are are able to return to sport much faster, people who get foot fatigue and plantar fasciitis using it and it helps them with their foot strength and their foot posture to those who have MS, Parkinson's, had a stroke, and they're walking much better, and actually a lot of those individuals are running (laughs) again because they're able to sense the ground. Um, I would say the effects that we're seeing is because of what I said in the beginning, that everything that controls our movement is based off of sensory information. Life is sensory, movement is sensory. Noboso is a technique to turn the volume up on sensory information coming in from one of the most important gateways in our body, which is the skin and the bottom of our feet. Okay, now, full disclosure, you turned me on to some of these insoles a while back, and I was excited to put them in my shoes, and uh, what I did that I think was probably not the thing to do and having discussed it with you, now I appreciate that I was looking at it the wrong way, is trying to go out and run five miles of hills with these in my shoes barefoot. <laughs> yeah. What ended up happening is I felt like my feet were on a cheese grater where I guess it wasn't a function of stimulation anymore. I was just grating my feet down to nothing. But to be clear on the use for the insoles. Can you kind of touch on that for me? Yes. So with the insoles, for those who go to the website, and um, I'm not sure you're going to be including a link. I will if you like. Okay. Yeah. It, it just would guide people a little bit easier. But if you go to the website, you will see that we have three different levels of stimulus. So what you may have wanted to do, Richard, was use probably one of the lower stimulating insoles when you're running just to get your feet used to it, et cetera, and it's less abrasive. But we have a 1.0, which is a one millimeter stimulus, a 1.5 
in Seoul, which is a 1.5 millimeter stimulus. And then we have the Nero in Seoul. So Nobosa 1.0, Nobosa 1.5, Nobosa Nero. Nero is the most stimulating. That is our quote unquote clinical insole. We do have people who run in them. So it's, you know, everyone has different level of sensitivity. I never recommend buying them, putting them in, and then going for a long run. And especially hills, you're just going to have a lot of like downhill friction that's happening with the foot. But they are a really good technique for recovering the feet, for priming the feet before you go running. Let's say you put the Nobosa Nero, and then you do some of your movement prep work before you start running. Or after you go for a long run, you want to put the Nobosa Nero in your shoes, and then that's how you walk around the rest of your day. I actually don't have to release my feet anymore. I used to do golf ball releases in the bottom of my feet. And instead, I actually just wear the Naboso insoles. And that in itself is a foot recovery, which is awesome because it saves time. <laughs> it's more efficient. Sure. Um, but there's there's many different applications on how you want to do it. Is it a form of activation slash movement prep? Is it a form of sensory stimulation doing dynamic movement? Let's say when you're at the gym and you're lifting or you're throughout your day and you stand a lot, so you want to have that constant feedback. Or is it a form of recovery? It honestly could be used for any of those. And the switching between the levels of stimulus is also recommended because if you're constantly wearing the same texture, you do get a slight adaptation to it. So if you say have the 1.5 and you're wearing that every day, switching it up maybe every couple days with the Neuro or the 1.0, then re-stimulates the nervous system with a similar two-point kind of textured design, but the subtlety in the different height then re-stimulates the nervous system in a different way. Cool. Wow. Well, I uh, absolutely encourage the concept of getting the stimulation into the feet, waking people up, getting them out of cushion shoes, get them to strengthen their feet, get them to improve the range of motion, all of which is going to lead to less injuries and ultimately better performance. And I, I just love what you're doing, Emily. I have to tell you, I'm not going to blow smoke up your skirt, but you know, I've been following your stuff forever and, and you just do such an amazing job with this. And I know you're, you're still a student yourself in this. And, and I just, I, I just love what you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. I will forever be a student. I am always learning and reading and curious to, there's, the body is way too complex to go to medical school, finish and say, okay, that's it. I know everything there is. Um, it's just too, too fascinating for me to stop learning. Well, I, I agree with you. You know, here I am getting to be an old man and I'm still constantly trying to do everything I can to become more in tune with what's important where performance is concerned so you're absolutely an integral part of that whole process and and I, i've used you often and i'm going to do a clinic here again in austin texas this week and this conversation will reappear in that audience so awesome thank you so much and i will in fact put those links up on this podcast for those that are curious you want to go check out the stick mobility. You want to go check into Naboso. And you also might look at the bundle. I, I know that there's a bundle and there's some tutorial videos that are associated with the, the kit. I have the two seven-foot poles because 
I'm taller. I'm about six foot two, and the taller you are, the taller the pole should be. And then I have the shorter pole. And I have been challenging myself with a series of exercises that are offered up in the video. Makes perfect sense to me, and I just think it's a great adjunct to anybody that's trying to prepare or stay optimal in their fitness and their performance. Awesome. Thanks, Richard. Now, listen, uh, Emily, I want you to enjoy the holidays. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be in your neck of the woods again in, I think, the end of March. I'll be in uh, New Jersey. Oh, where? Well, uh, Saddle River. Is that, the, is that the name of the town? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Saddle. Well, look, all I know is that last year, well, actually it was this year. seems so long ago. This year we went to New Jersey, did a clinic there. We sold out, and then we sold out a clinic in Pennsylvania. So we stayed the week. And my oh, wife, wow. And my wife says, well, since we're here, let's go to New York. You know, she wanted to go to, to the city. And I'm like, ah, I don't know. I don't think I want to do that. She goes, yeah, no. So I had to placate my wife. So we went and spent a couple of days in the city. I tried to reach out to you. I don't know if you were home, but oh, I wanted to take you to dinner. Oh, yeah. I totally want to do that. You know what? I think maybe I was in South Africa. Yeah. Uh, either you come my way or I come your way. Yeah, but, yeah. And we got we to gotta connect. It's been five years and we've never been face to face. I know. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> no excuses. No, I know. All right. Well, I just warned you. I'm coming. Okay, All right. I'll be ready. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Happy birthday again. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Of course. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.